Making It Political, a student-run inclusive podcast representative of the USF Votes Club at the University of San Francisco. For those of you who don't know, USF Votes is a club that aims at registering and empowering students to vote through voter advocacy, education, and capacity building. Our goals are part of the Leo T. McCarthy Center for Public Service and the Common Goods Initiative to register all eligible USF students to vote and participate in our political democracy. As part of a nationwide initiative, we partner with All in Challenge, the Andrew Goodman Foundation, and TurboVote to amplify our voice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Making It Political. On today's episode, our USF Votes student activists, Maya Lawton, Zachary Sexton, and Harlan Crawford are joined by Evan Marlborough, a Puffin Fellow at the Andrew Goodman Foundation, in conversation about the importance of youth activism in the wake of a new administration and this role this new generation is already playing in our political reality. There's a lot to talk about. Stay tuned. Evan is an honors graduate at Georgia State University with a degree in public policy. He was a research fellow at the Department of Defense and has done extensive media research and analytical projects. He has interned with the DA, the Public Defender's Office, and the Office of Congressman David Scott. He has served as president of the Young Democrats at Georgia State University and has also been elected as a Vote Everywhere ambassador. Uh, Evan also founded the Vote Everywhere GSU, which is an organization that organized the first ever student-run polling location in the state of Georgia, which is amazing. Um, so we would like to hear all about everything that I just mentioned. Um, so why don't we start with um, you introducing yourself, Evan? I'm here. Um, my name is Evan Malbro. I'm a recent graduate of Georgia State University. Um, I currently work as the founder and executive director of the Georgia Youth Poll Worker Project, a nonpartisan um, and nonprofit organization that's goal is to make election work more accessible to young people. Born and raised in Smyrna, Georgia. Um, I've lived in Georgia all my life. Um, I've only really left to, for work and things like that. Um, yeah, so um, I started the Poll Worker Project in July of last year in response to the June 9th election. Um, that was that saw a lot of issues and um, tried to combat the poll worker shortage that was occurring in Georgia. Um, through my work, I was able to write um, articles about elections and democracy, as well as um, work with Fulton County to teach people how to be election workers and run those classrooms. So I was able to gain, um, I was actually really lucky to actually have um, jumped into my field uh, upon graduating. And um, now I'm just currently just working on a few projects to, uh, as I said before, make elections more accessible, making elections more efficient, and really just trying to, you know, push democracy forward in the South. I guess I had a quick question for you. Um, for HR, uh, HR one oriented, you know, uh, making in the sense of making uh, the voting process more accessible. Uh, I know at least in North Carolina where I'm stationed at right now. There are a lot of people who are against HR1 because of these so-called, you know, voter fraud, you know, uh, uh, thing, uh, sorry, voter, they allows voter fraud without the uh, voter ID laws and stuff like that. So I guess what I would want to hear your perspective on is why do you think that having open access to elections for all people in the country is more important than vetting 
or having these voter ID identification laws? Oh, absolutely. I think I, I, um, I understand the question. I just don't think it's not more important than vetting. I just think um, a lot of these laws are that are currently being passed are very erroneous, right? We've had free and fair elections. We've had safe elections um, for a while now in both states with voter ID and without voter ID, right? So what we really have to frame it as is just the fact of the matter is, is that certain people maintain power when voter, when voter turnout rates are low, right? And that's the reality of our society. Our society is built around voter turnout. If voter turnout goes up, that changes the variables that go into somebody getting elected, right? So as a country who has had significant issues, both um, intentionally and unintentionally, to get people to the ballot, um, these types of rules are really just trying to maintain the status quo of a lower voting rate. You know, like our election, our capabilities, um, I, like our capabilities to run a free and fair election have been um, greatly increasing over the past decades. But for some reason, the restrictions that are kind of going contrary to them have been going up, up and up, right? You know, so I think we really have to look at it like that, right? You know, all states should have a robust mail-in voting um, system. All states should have a robust um, early voting system. And of course on election day, right? But the reason why those things are being stopped is because that changes how power is distributed through um, the electorate and how um, people in power can maintain it. Thank you. Um, that, that's such a great answer. Now I have so many follow-up questions about, you know, uh, you raised such a great point about the way that the restrictions that are in place regarding voting, um, how that manifests itself as limiting in terms of power. I like, I like your conversation about power. Um, I want to back um, up just a bit and ask more generally um, what brought you to like want to be such a, a big advocate for voting? Um, and, and what do you see in times like this where it feels like people are reluctant to vote? You know, we have these restrictions and we have these very clear cut um, obstacles to people having voting uh, or exercising the right to vote. But when, but when they do have the opportunity to vote and people choose not to do it, um, what, what, what do you say to try and um, garner more awareness about the importance of voting and, and like how that can be used as, you know, people power? Yeah, absolutely. So I got started um, working um, when I got into college, I ended up going, my freshman year was the 2016 election. So I got a lot of experience working local races and doing canvassing and voter registration drives. Then upon my sophomore year, I was awarded a Vote Everywhere ambassadorship. So I was able to start building voter registration, voter information programming um, at my at alma mater, Georgia State. So um, after I got this information, I just continued to build um, on, our, on our program as a founding member, trying to make it be the best it can be and like exploring. That's how I got more into writing. That's how I got more into governmental affairs and organizing. And then, um, yeah, and then, you know, upon graduating, uh, I graduated into an election, just how I um, matriculated to college in an election. So a lot of um, the work I did 
what um, ran in parallel to the current um, election at the time, which was the 2020 election. So um, how to keep people involved? I think it, it's kind of a give or take, right? Because you have, I think at, in, in many cases, we put too much of an emphasis on voting the same way we put too little of an emphasis on voting, right? So um, voting of course is important, but it also there needs to be, when we're advertising voting, there needs to be a realistic standard, right? So just, just because um, you vote in an elected official, it doesn't, doesn't mean it has the effects on the broader um, political system that you're seeing, right? Like for example, um, by Joe Biden is president, right? And Donald Trump was president before him, right? And, you know, a lot of people came in thinking that it was just gonna be this completely societal change, right? That everything was gonna be, um, you know, all right that you know, a lot of the craziness is, is gonna stop happening, but now what a lot of, a lot of people are realizing is, you know, government moves slow, right? Government may not, may not be able to fix all the answers as quickly as you want them to be. And they're important issues, but you know, with bureaucracy, with governance, with other outside factors, it's hard, right? You know, what we are in, what, it's March 15th, uh, 2021, three days ago, Biden signed the stimulus checks, right? Which was a, a pivotal campaign promise. And even with that pivotal campaign promise, what did you see? You saw like the $15 minimum wage, which was another campaign problem, promise being taken away. You saw the emphasis on student loan, um, student loan forgiveness, that got taken away. So I think, and it's not just because of the vote, it's because of the system around it, right? So I think Sometimes as voting rights activists, sometimes what we do is we, we tend to overpromise, right? You know, you, you, you don't, you know, you want to fix the healthcare system, you got to vote. You want to fix the immigration system, you got to vote. And that's true, but there's also many other actions that need to take place outside of election day to put the political pressure um, and societal pressure on these issues. It can't just be, oh, we're gonna vote and everything's gonna be okay, right? Because if that was the case, it would have worked already, right? So you got, I think oftentimes as voting rights activists, we're trying to sell the vote so heavily and so heavily that we end up tend to over-promising what, what the influence of that vote is. It is important, but it's a, it's a minor tool in an entire toolbox of action. And I think a lot of times, a lot of non-activist people, they get, they, they're, you know, bombarded with um, these ideals and with these, um, what is it? I, I would say, not say delusions of grandeur, but with a lot of these promises. And when those promises aren't coming the way they, that they were promised, now they're kind of disillusioned with the system, right? Or now they're saying, oh, you know, I voted and my life hasn't changed, right? So I think that's I think that's why a lot of people tend not to vote because a lot of times they've been sold a bill of goods that isn't changed, right? Or they 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 voted because they said, well, it's your expectation to vote, but they don't have any real um, personal reasons behind it. They just saw it as like a procedural thing. So I think that is what really stops a lot of people from getting more involved because they don't see a benefit for them in their life. Yeah, you, you just mentioned a couple things that I'd, I'd like to talk more. I like how you talked, um, you introduced the idea of like a toolbox, right, of activism. Um, voting isn't just the only tool in that toolbox. There's lots of other things. Um, and then the other thing you mentioned, um, 
you know, voting with such a big, you know, such big expectations for these hot topics, you know, about, you know, I'm voting for gun laws and I'm expecting such radical changes, you know, um, government does work very slowly. And so I think that's something that we've tried to incorporate a lot as a club is the idea of voting as a value. Um, before you vote, we want to have these conversations about these topics, you know, like what sort of dialogue are we having? What sorts of values make me interested in this topic? Um, because there's a lot of different changes that kind of come to the front when we start thinking about, you know, like, why, why is this, why is this issue bothering me first? You know, there are a lot of small changes that we can make besides just like, you know, there's more to do than just cast a ballot. You know, there's more that needs to happen. Um, when you when you talk about voting as being a part of this larger toolbox, what do you think are other tools that we should be using? Of course, uh, protest, right? Education, um, collective action, right? So those things, those all go into um, swaying the powers that be and leveraging um, the powers of the citizenry, right? So all of those things come together to make movements, right? If you look at the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement wasn't an election, right? It wasn't just an election. It was a collection of boycotts. It, it was a collection of uh, protests and acts of civil disobedience, right? There were elections, right? Because, um, you know, there was a lot of, um, there's a lot of pressure on the Kennedy campaign, the Kennedy Johnson ticket um, for a civil rights act. And that pushed it to the front for forefront to get Kennedy elected, right? And then of course, upon Kennedy's passing, Johnson ended up taking that for electability, right? Then you had the March on Washington. And like, you also had, um, you know, a lot of media ways to um, frame this issue in the media to put pressure on elected officials, right? So these, when you're talking about a movement, it's not just elections. It is those collective actions. It is those protests. It is those information campaigns. And then it is that, that political awareness and that political dedication to one cause. In your work um, thus far, um, you know, opening up more voting access points for people in Georgia um, and the projects that you're a part of right now, when people are reluctant to participate politically what what's how what's your approach you know to keep people motivated to generate motivation um I, I kind of explain it like this it's like you know all the time if a person doesn't want to vote I try to get them involved right that's the before it's not just voting so I try to get them involved it's like well have you considered you know doing this have you ever considered doing this right because as before there's a lot of actions the idea is we shouldn't just be making voters, we should be making involved citizens, right? And you might not have to lead with being a voter, right? You might just have to leave, oh, being lead with being a person who joins like, let's say a union or somebody who goes to a meeting or somebody who writes about the issues in this community. And then the idea is that as they start getting more and more involved, they'll be more inclined to vote because now they have a bigger grasp on the issues at hand. One thing, Evan, I wanted to ask you about is this election, the previous one, seems like it's being celebrated as, you know, a grand amount of turnout and something that we should all be proud of. And certainly it wasn't perfect. And 
more people could have voted. And something I wanted to get to is in the four or so months that have um, preceded the 2020 general election, have you been encouraged by what you've seen in the months beyond this election? Do you see turnout being high in the 2022 midterms? Do you see promise in terms of going beyond just voting? Or what have you seen on the ground as an activist that can tell us what we can expect to see in terms of um, engagement in the future? I say it's dependent on the people who have those decisions, right? So um, going back to campaign promises, right? Of course, currently there's like the promise that, oh, we want, you know, forgive student loan debt, uh, $1,400 similar check, sim stimulus checks that happen. Um, the whole um, immigration thing is um, the kids in cages controversy, right? And like a, a lot of other promises that were made um, on behalf of the campaigns in power, right? So, you know, what's really gonna affect the turnout is the ability to get those promises done and restore faith amongst your electorate, right? Because, you know, a lot of times we frame lack of voter turnout, we, we, we put it on the responsibility of the voter. It's like, well, why aren't y'all vote voting out? I'm, I'm sorry, why aren't y'all turning out? Why aren't y'all voting? Why aren't you participating? But in all honesty, it really falls on the person trying to get elected, right? Because if, if your population is not voting for you, or at least um, and, and if there's issues with them voting, they're at least you're not, you're not getting a population to at least try to vote for you, that, that um, responsibility falls on you, right? Because you weren't able through your actions and through your words, you weren't able to galvanize students and, uh, or young people or any other population and have a track record of getting things done, right? So I think for what both parties need to really look at is like, okay, how do we get our promises done to the point where people will have faith in us to go into that ballot box and give us either more power or help us maintain the power we have. And I think that would be the biggest indicator. What's what's happening, you know, between now and March 15th, 2022, right? What's been passed? Um, what's our society look like? What's the economy look like? What's um, our social services look, looking like? I think that will be a determining factor of who turns out in November of 2022. Uh, I had a quick question. So I know you're doing most of your work in Georgia and there are a lot of you know obvious barriers to doing political work in the South, specifically as a black man. And it's something that I've encountered quite a few times. And I just wanted to gauge your response. Like how do you deal with trying to create unified movements towards inciting real action with all these cultural and historical barriers in the way? What is your uh, system of trying to persevere through that and bringing other members of your community to the forefront and allowing them to really help make change? I would say uh, unifying against solutions, right? Offering solutions and programs that really help, um, being realistic and really just, you know, putting my best foot forward and working with people who put their best foot forward um, as well. I think that uh, you said something really valuable there in being realistic, because there are a lot of problems with this huge push towards one side of the dialectic rather than the other. People try and push things very far, very like quickly. And I think that ends up, you know, shooting them. It ends up with a kind of slowing effect on the movement as a whole. So how would you say you set your expectations to be realistic and allow that to be more solution oriented 
rather than idealistic and kind of daydreaming? Um, I think, uh, you know, from my background in policy, um, I think I base a lot of, I, I base a lot of my work off of reevaluating or, or evaluating the systems that we are currently in and then proposing solutions that help um, either um, stop, that's either stop shortcomings or help make something more advanced and more efficient, right? So like trying to attack and replace these structures that um, are causing harm and that are causing issues, right? Like, you know, you see a lot of that in things like the defund the police movement saying, you know, structurally, you know, this system is what is messed up. Here are solutions to fix that, right? So I kind of follow that motive for people can see, okay, here's how my policy helped, right? So that people can actually see it and um, understand it, right? So I think that's, that's the direction I take with my work and how I try to make an impact. Kind of like harnessing that into your own personal experience. I know you were working with the DEA for a while. So how would you say you've kind of set those expectations up uh, to help with these drug policy issues, specifically in the South, a place that's pretty puritanical about their treatment of drugs? How would you say that you were able to kind of sway the, uh, uh, I guess, the action of the government in one way or another to try and create a more equitable system? I actually didn't work for the DA. I worked for uh, the Cobb County DA, district attorney. Oh, I'm sorry, DA, my bad. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, going into information, right? When I worked in the legal system, I got a lot of insight about both law and policy and how those work, right? Um, something in public policy we always like to talk about is political feasibility, right? Is this politically feasible? How will this move? How, how will this move forward politically, right? Because of, of course, there's always something you can judge on their merits, right? You can judge a policy on its merit saying, okay, economically, this checks out. Functionally, this checks out, right? Impact-wise, this checks out. But then you gotta take that and then put that through the lens of political feasibility, right? You know, how long would this take? Is this an election year, right? What's the political climate? What's the business slash political climate in the area where you're trying to implement this policy or program? Because independent on whether or not the policy is good or not, those considerations will allow, those considerations will in fact um, affect whether or not the program goes the or policy goes the way you want it to, right? Like, and going into the idea of like drug legalization and things like that, right? You know, on the merits, you know, the only thing that's really stopping things like marijuana from being legal on the federal level or um, other substances being legal on the federal level is literally just politics, right? It's it's a political it's a political argument. It's a politically feasible argument, right? There are people, there are voters who don't want these things to be passed, who don't want these things to be propagated, and they're using they're using that power to stop it, right? It, they're hurting the political feasibility of legalization. So now, when politicians are considering legalization efforts. They're saying, well, you know, this might hurt me from getting elected next next session, next go around, right? So, you know, being aware of, you know, kind of being able to take something and look at it through two separate lenses really helps with how you strategize 
and you know setting those realistic expectations right like for example in georgia they're passing a lot of voter registration bills um that would hurt voter turnout in the state right but and as a voting rights activist i know these things are wrong and i'm fighting against it but i'm also very cognizant of the fact that there is a um, republican trifecta in the state that are pushing for these things right both the governor state senate and house so I have to be realistic in the fact that like, you know, these are gonna pass. So what are my strategies to do if it's passed? Like maybe go the legal route, maybe go the court route, right? Or go the federal route with HR1, but setting those realistic expectations and strategies and moving in more of a realist um, mindset. One thing I was curious about is you said that the slow bureaucratic nature of government is something that often dissuades people from being civic participants. And I was just curious, does government have to be this like slow bureaucratic process or is it possible? And is it something we can strive for to make government more expedient and be something that more clearly works for the everyday man and woman? I think it can be, I think it, it shouldn't be super fast, right? Because too much volatility will end up hurting things like economics, will end up hurting um, enforcement standards, especially with new laws. But if you look at some of the things in our system that are structurally inadequate, there is a lot of time that could be made up if we take things um, out, right? Like for one big example is the filibuster, right? You know, we live in a country that is a democracy, right? And we, we hope that our electoral politics can help make changes, but the filibuster kind of falls in the face of that, right? because you have a situation where you know you have one house of government that is going off of a simple majority and then another house of government going off of um, six tenths, right? So going, going off that, that two thirds idea. And though, you know, it's supposed, you know, the idea was it's supposed to promote bipartisanship and unity. The fact of the matter is, I, I personally think it hurts it, right? because there's so many policies that, you know, could be debated, that could be tweaked, that could be moved, that will never get passed based off of partisan um, hurt, right? So it's actually had the inverse effect, right? You say you want, to, you want to promote bipartisanship, but now it's really just used as a political tool for the parties to shoot at each other, right? Another example is the electoral college, right? So you have, a situation where our direct vote for some of the highest offices in the land don't actually come from the people, but rather a set of electors, right? And that the weight of the vote is changed depending on where you're at based on political um, ideations, right? They said, you know, half the presidents this century did not win the popular vote, right? So, and then that goes back to the former, former question about why people don't have faith in democracy, right? Because it's not like, people are being mad that their their choice their choice didn't win the popular like didn't win the will of the people and they're just pouting about it or they're just being bitter about it no right when you look at the numbers one candidate has 4 million 7 million people who 4 4 million 7 million more people that voted for them and that person is not the winner right and you know, so how can you expect things like that and be and say, well, you should vote. Your vote matters. Well, you know, I have tangible things in that I can point out systematically 
that say the contrary, right? And I think that really hurts um, a lot of people's ability to have faith in the system and things like that. Uh, earlier, you mentioned how the power of like the incumbent constituency really slows down progress in a lot of ways. And I guess I just wanted to like, gauge your response. What do you think is the best strategy um, as to working with those groups and trying to find solutions that not only push for the change that you want to see, but make it feasible for them? Do you have some sort of like uh, workshop where you talk with people that are opposed to your policy or do you just kind of you know, trial and error, see what gets pushed back and see what can actually make it through. I, I think it's a lot, it's a lot of collaboration. And then it's also um, seeing how, going back to what you said, seeing how it works in different areas, right? How does this work? How does this fare with the business community? How does this fare with the nonprofit community? How does this fare with the media, right? The media community. And then how does it fare politically, right? Because all those things weigh on each other. Media has a huge influence on politics, right? Politics has a huge influence on business, which has a huge influence on media, right? Um, nonprofits, right? They usually fill in that weird void. They have um, huge influences on governmental structures, on, you know, media, on those things. So all those things interconnect. So what you really got to do is when you're trying to move something forward, you got to take a whole hard approach. You got to really take the time to look at it through these lenses so that you're putting your best foot forward, right? So you're, you're saying, okay, you know, we're, we're pressuring the media for this to promote this, but we're also pre pressuring bit local business owners and corporations with, you know, hun hundreds of thousands of people in their employee to support this as well internally, right? So it's things like that, because that's, that's what builds power, right? You need to get coalitions through different people in different industries to really promote and really get things done. I completely agree um, in terms of like, I, I think that power comes from relationships, um, absolutely. And I think it's interesting how we tend to talk about politics because one thing that I've been working on now is, you know, when I have an issue that I wanna talk about, you know, bringing it forward into the room and, and, and trying to include people by redefining what politics means, like making it less exclusive and instead of thinking about it the way that people, that sometimes it, it can be depicted as, you know, it's just between the Democrats and the Republicans or two big parties. And, and, um, and I think that that can deter people from wanting to talk about politics, you know, keep politics off of the dinner table because it's has nothing to do with us. But in reality, um, even when we're talking about local politics, politics has different different scales, right, and magnitudes. But like local politics, how do we um, clean up our neighborhood? You know, how do we, you know, the, these simple needs that we want, we don't always think about it as a political issue. But when we think that politics is, you know, what rules do we want our relationships to be based upon? Um, and how we how we address problems like you know planning solving so solving problems even basic problems and having these conversations and cooperating with one another that's politics it's it's not as far away and distant as sometimes we paint it out to be but it's something that's um, 
deals with issues that we're facing on a daily basis, you know? Um, how do you how do you shape the conversation about politics when you're um, doing the work you're doing? You know, as a as a founder of the Georgia Poll Youth Poll Worker Initiative, um, you know, I'm sure that you are interacting with a lot of youth, and that's part of your work is encouraging um, this conversation about politics. How do you how do you define politics to make sure that people um, want to have a conversation about it? Um, I, I, I put it through the lens of the issues they care about, right? And I, and I tried to work to provide, um, going back to, you know, feasible and realistic solutions to some of the issues they say. And that's why I say, you know, you can't just go around telling people just to vote, vote, vote whenever they come out with an issue. You got to really look at it through a multifaceted lens, right? Because if somebody has an issue in January, well, there's a chance the next election won't be until November, right? So what, what's gonna be happening in the interim, right? So I think um, with politics, you know, a lot, of the a lot of it is based off of ideas, but it, you should probably try to lead with action, right? Well, here's what you can do now. Here's the effect you can expect from this. And I think that's what a lot of people like you go, you come in from a standpoint of you're trying, you're 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 trying to provide them a service on, and information on how to advance their lives and advance their ideas and their causes. We are um, starting to reach our, our time uh, with you, Evan. So I'm going to, you know, end end our podcast, kind of thinking about, um, you know, what actions can we take right now in in our political government. Um, to make sure that our voices are being heard. But I, I do want to hear um, if you have any concluding remarks about uh, what's keeping you motivated uh, during this time. We talked about how you keep other people motivated, but what's keeping you motivated, um, especially during the pandemic, you know, um, being distant from people in, in, in an area of work where you kind of want to be around people. Yeah, I would say um, what keeps me motivated is the fact that, the, you know, there is work to be done and that there are the solutions are out there. Right. And it's just up to us to put them to the forefront and actually implement them. So I think that's what keeps me going and allows me to be able to, you know, come out and do this every day and work with multiple people and really try to build these coalitions. And I think the advice I would end for your listeners is just, to, you know, um, search for all those methods so that you don't just that so you're not you're not just being civically engaged in maybe one or two ways, but you can build um, you can build movements that have multifaceted um, outlets for you know what you're feeling or what you want done or what you want to bring awareness to. Thank you so much, Evan, um, for joining us. Um, you had so many eloquent ways of explaining politics too, um, especially as a toolkit, um, you know, thinking about it as um, local actions. Um, and so it was so great to have you um, with, the, with us today. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the invite.
Thanks for joining us for the USF Votes Making It Political podcast. Join us next time with another guest as we reimagine, reshape, and reclaim our role as civic participants in our democracy. Please feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the tag USF Votes. Again, the tag is USF Votes. And please feel free to leave a review on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Have a great day.